And so we sing about it, we hear about it, and we think about it. It is, it is a wondrous mystery. It is a, it is a majestic mystery that was unknown for generations in the past. There, was, there were foretastes of it. There were, there were prophecies of it pointing to it, but yet it was only in the fullness of the coming of Christ that we saw that mystery unfold and really only saw it unfold after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, which we will talk about in these days as we go through the month of May. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue moving through at least a portion of this book thinking about the supremacy of Christ. Uh, Paul is dealing with a church that he did not start. Uh, Epaphras is the one who started that more than likely and then he's given a report to Paul about it. But yet he has a great affection for these people. He's heard about their faith and their hope and their love in Christ and, and how they're growing. And so he writes them a letter because he's also heard that there are some who are slipping in among them who are saying, you know, Jesus is important. Jesus is good. But you got to have more than just that. Jesus is not sufficient uh, in, its, in, his, uh, to in totality for all that you need for real salvation, for real walk, for real joy, for real peace in the Christian life. And Paul is warning them to see that, wait a minute, Christ plus nothing is everything. Christ plus nothing is real Christianity. And Christ plus something else is falsehood. And he wants them to see that. And we need to see that in our day. Because we live in a day where there tends to be an attempt to kind of mix things with the gospel, whether it be new age or old age or, or, or other religions and kind of bring a synergism about that says it's okay to believe this and this. You've got Jesus. Go ahead and believe these other things. It'll make you happier, make you better, make you wealthier or whatever. And Paul says to us today in the 21st century, in 2020, that is not true. It is Christ alone in all of his sufficiency that we talked about last Sunday. And now he wants to talk about uh, where we were in light of where we are now. And, and he also wants to talk about his ministry, which I think is a model of ministry to you and me. So as we think about this, we're thinking about uh, a changed life issues forth in ministry. Because when Paul's life was changed on the Damascus Road, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, he immediately went into ministry of the gospel. He immediately began to, began to teach the gospel that he was taught from the Lord Jesus Christ. A dramatic change took place in his life that put him in ministry. And when we come to Christ, there ought to be a dramatic change in our life. And Paul says there will be. That will also issue forth in ministry. Now hear the word of the Lord as I begin reading in verse 21 and read through the end of this chapter. And you, talking to the uh, Colossian Christians in the first place, but also talking to you and me in, in a sense of, this word to us in our generation. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not wavering from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want to make just a little comment there, and he does it in the next passage too, but 
the ESV, which I'm reading from, English Standard Bible uh, version, says that I, Paul, became a minister. That, that sounds a little off from what New American Standard and other translations make that, and I tend to prefer New American Standard here. New American Standard says, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. There, there's a different, little bit of different nuance there. To say that you become a minister could be, well, one day I woke up inside, I'll be a minister. I went to seminary and I became a minister. I did this and I became a minister. Paul is making clear here in everything he's saying that his ministry, his calling, his being moved out of the, of the darkness into the light and out of persecuting church into serving the church, he was made that by the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever miss that. It's a work of God in Paul's life and it's a work of God in your life and my life that brings us to where we are. Let me finish this passage. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We'll come back to that. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery, there's that word, the wondrous mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, I struggle, I labor. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is powerful and teaches us truth about you and about your work in Paul's life and consequently your work in our lives. Father, give us an understanding of this as we study this passage together. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want you to see something here. I want you to see what Paul does in chapter 1. Because really, he takes it from a reverse perspective. He begins, as we saw several weeks ago, praying for the church. He said, I've heard about you, I've heard that you're growing, and I, I want to pray for you. And he tells them what he prays for. I pray you may be filled with the understanding of God. I pray that you may know him and know his will, that there be a growing relationship between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that this will happen in your life in a very significant way. Then after praying for them, he talks about how God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness to the dominion or the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ. He says he's delivered us. He's brought us redemption. He's given us the forgiveness of sin and sins. But he doesn't say in those first verses, before he gets to verse 15 uh, and talk, starts talking about the preeminence of Christ, he doesn't say why you needed that redemption. He goes on in, in verses 15 through 20 and talks about the emphatic aloneness of Christ. Solo Christo, in Christ alone, 
we have salvation. In Christ alone, we have the Christian life. In Christ alone, we have redemption and we have conversion and all the things that go with the idea of being made in Christ. And he lays that out. He says he's the Lord of creation. Christ is. He was there in the beginning. He is the head of the church. He is the fullness of the invisible God. The invisible God who is spirit has made manifest in the flesh in Jesus Christ. The Trinitarian nature, not an easy thing to understand and brings a lot of confusion and a lot of people, a lot of doubts, but it's the reality expressed and revealed in His Word. And so we understand He shows us the fullness of God. We dealt with that last week. And that He is the reconciler. He is the reconciler of all things to Himself. He did this through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So he starts out by praying for them. Then he says, those who we're praying for have been moved from darkness to light, from, from death to life, from the domain of Satan to the kingdom of Christ. All those things have taken place. And then he talks about this Christ who did it. And then in this passage, he starts out by talking about their former condition. Now he's talking to a church of believers. He's talking to a church who have trusted Christ. But he says, I want you to understand, I want you to always remember from whence you came. I want you to always remember that, that you are not some kind of good person that God just said, oh man, I got to have him or I got to have her. And so because of their goodness, because of their ability, I'm going to bring them into my kingdom. Paul says, no, I want you to understand, you're in the kingdom of Christ now, you're redeemed now, you've been reconciled now. But there was a time when you, individually and collectively, were alienated, separated from God. Separated from his peace, separated from his joy, separated from his presence. You are living life for yourself. You are living life on your own. You are living life as though God did not exist. And we have to be very careful here. Because sometimes even Christians act that way. One of the most significant things I've ever read in my 60 years or so of being a, a, a believer, or 55 years of being a believer, is, I, is I've learned, one of the most significant things I've ever read was Stephen Charnock's chapter in the, the, the Existence and Attributes of God on Practical Atheism. And he said the problem is that sometimes, even though we are reconciled, even though we are in Christ, we, we kind of act like we're not. We kind of live life for ourselves. I think one thing this pandemic has caused us to examine is what is really important. What do we really put our trust in? And we put our trust in the economy, we put our trust in our possessions, and we put our trust in our job, and those things have kind of vanished. All the things we kind of bow down to now have shown that they are weak and powerless. The only thing, the only consistent that is true is God himself. But he said, at one time, you weren't just maybe because of your sin, acting like you're alienated from God, you were alienated. You had no part in the divine nature. You had no part in divine fellowship. You were alienated. And not only that, you were hostile in mind. Now, what does it mean to be hostile in mind? Alienated is to be separated. Alienated is to have a barrier between you and God. Hostile in mind is really just a way of saying, and you were self-centered. You were you are only thinking about yourself. And to be thinking about self rather than thinking about the things of God or thinking about others even is a hostility that the Scripture speaks about consistently and talks about 
not being something that the believer is to pursue. You're to pursue things above. Paul says in this book later on, you're to look up to the things above. Seek the things above. Seek the things in the heavenlies where Christ is. Set your mind on those things. So Paul says, I want you to know you were, you were alienated, you were hostile in mind, and that alienation and that hostility of mind caused you to do evil deeds. Now, you may say, well, I never murdered. I never committed adultery. I never did all this. Paul does not categorize those evil deeds. Those evil deeds are pursuing life without Christ. Those evil deeds are whatever you look for to bring yourself peace and pleasure and not finding that pleasure in God, finding that pleasure in His purpose and His work in your life. So that's who you were. You were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. And then Paul talks about in that second verse, verse 22, the means by which reconciliation was accomplished. He he says it's, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death you. There is a a sense in which it's in his body that hung on the cross as a sacrifice that you are reconciled. You're not reconciled as some of the people are trying to teach in Colossae by some kind of extra spiritual experience. It's not by saying, oh, well, I've trusted Jesus, but now I've got to have this experience. or I've got to have this enlightenment. I've got to go this other step. I've got to add something to Christ. Paul says, no. Christ has reconciled you in his body on the cross, by his death, through his blood, that reconciliation is complete and is absolutely sufficient. Paul says, don't go looking for anything else because here's what God is doing for you. The result of that reconciliation is in the second half of that verse. In order order that he may present you holy and blameless, and above reproach to himself. You who were alienated and evil deeds and hostile in mind, he has done a work through his body, the body of his flesh, on the cross. He's done a work in you to make you holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, there are several ways that people have interpreted that through the years, and I think the most accurate way, the clearest way in the first place is to see that he's talking about union with Christ in the present. He's talking about union with Christ because he's going to say that it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. He's talking about you coming into this relationship where Christ is in you and you are in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in, in that involved in that of binding you together and holding you together and giving you strength and giving you purpose and giving you right thinking, not hostile thinking, right living, not evil deeds living. It's Christ doing this work to make you holy and blameless and above reproach in the present. You say, well, some days I don't feel so holy, so blameless. Some days I don't feel above reproach. I think what Paul wants us to see here is it's not based on your feelings. It's based on the reality of what Christ has said that he has done. 
in his body on the cross for you. And when you trust in that, that becomes a realization in the present that may be still growing in sanctification and maturing in sanctification, but it's a reality that is real right now. You are holy and blameless and beyond reproach, above reproach in the eyes of Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts of sin when we sin and we do sin. But the Holy Spirit convicts and calls us to repentance and we turn back to Christ and we call out to Him and say, Lord, I, I sinned. I, I agree with you about that. Please cleanse me of it and establish in me what I can see to be you at work in my life. I think that's what John's talking about in 1 John 1, 9 when he says, you know, if we confess our sins, and there the statement is, could literally be translated, since we confess our sins. The mark of a believer is that we confess our sins. And since we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our sins are forgiven in Christ, past, past present, future, but our sins are forgiven and cleansed in the current time as we confess them and agree with him about them. That's that word confess again, homo legeo in the Greek, homo meaning the same as, legeo meaning to speak, to say the same thing that Christ says about our sin. We agree, Lord, that was sin. Restore to me a sense of my holiness, a sense of my blamelessness. Restore unto me, Lord, a sense of your presence in a very real, clear way. So Paul says our former condition was this, he, he, the means by which our reconciliation is accomplished is in the words in the body of his flesh through death. The result is making us holy and blameless and above reproach. Union with Christ right now. And you've heard me say this, Grace Baptist Church, that union with Christ is really the essence and the central issue of the gospel. Jesus talked about it in John chapter 15. So it's in now, in Christ now, Union with Christ now, but it also is in that future presentation to God in glory. There's a time when Christ will usher us into his presence, either through death or by his second coming, and he will say to the Father, I present to you my body, a part of my earthly body, the body of Christ, the church. I present him to you, and there it will be perfectly holy and perfectly blameless and perfectly above reproach. So we have the, our condition, we have the means, and we have the result. And then Paul talks about the evidence. The evidence of that reconciliation and what its effects are. How it affects our life, and affects our bodies, our, our, our life. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now, some people look at that and say, well, look at here. Paul is saying we're holy and blameless and above reproach, and we've had that done for us. We've been transferred, but it's up to us to keep it. Because he says here, if you continue. I think, again, that word could, could be looked at as Paul saying, since this has been done in your life, this is what will happen in your life. You will continue in the faith. You will continue stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that has been preached to you and that you have believed. When we are in Christ, that miraculous thing happens that we're made alive. He's going to talk about that in a minute. We're made alive unto God through Christ Jesus. 
Our faith is firm, continuing in it, stable, steadfast, not shifting. Paul loves to use that imagery of shifting throughout all of his letters. He'll talk about, and Jesus did too, about shifting sands and, and, and waves that are shifting and tossing about. And, and, and Paul is just simply saying here, when, when we are in Christ, when we are his saints, as he refers to us in that next section, when we are his saints and we've had that mystery revealed to us, we will stand firm, stable. We will not be shifting with every wind of doctrine. Does that mean we'll never have any doubts? No. Does that mean, mean we'll never come to a crisis of faith where we, we question everything we believed and everything we thought about? No, it, we will come to that. We've all, we all come to that at some time or another. Uh, if we haven't, we've probably not thought, thought through Christianity as deeply as we need to think through it. Uh, and, and so Paul is just simply saying, I think it's the words that, of that hymn we sing so often is, He will hold me fast. Because you're going to find out, when he gets down to verse 29, he's going to talk about his toil is struggling with his energy and his power that's working within us. We do struggle, we do toil, we do have doubts that we have to face, and we have to struggle with, and we have to deal with, and we have to study through, if you will. I had that, when I was in college, I had a, a crisis of faith, if you will, that I, I can't, was being so bombarded in a secular psychology and philosophy department that, that I, I was told all sorts of contradictory things, and I, I had to just get away for a while with, with nothing but my Bible and The God Who Is There by Francis Schaeffer. And spend that time just alone with God saying, God, teach me. Teach me what is real by your Holy Spirit. Understand, when, when he talks, I'm getting ahead of myself here, I know, but when he talks about the riches, the glory, the mystery, which is, is Christ in you, the hope of glory, he says, he has made this known to the saints. He's revealed this to the saints. It's like that passage we looked at uh, last week when uh, Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And then he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you didn't figure that out. You, you didn't come to that of your own intelligence. But the, whole, the, the Father who is in heaven, my Father who is in heaven, has revealed that to you. And Paul is saying here that when we come to this point of stability and standing firm in the faith and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, it's not our intelligence that does it. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. It's the power of God working within us. That's significant. That's important to remember. That's why when we do have doubts, we do have struggles, we do feel like we're, we're unstable for the moment, that we go to his word and we go to prayer and we, we, try, to get, we try to see what is it, God, you're, you're wanting me to work through here because there's something that will bring a big great, a breakthrough for all those who belong to Christ. And that's important. The evidence that you are in Christ is not that you won't have a doubt sometimes, but it is that you're always brought back by the power of the Holy Spirit to a stability of faith, a trust in him. You know, a lot of people during this time of coronavirus are, are asking all sorts of questions. If God is all-powerful, why did he not stop this? And, and I can give you a lot of reasons for that. I'm not, I don't, that's not the sermon today. Maybe that'll be the one as we come out of this we'll talk about a little bit. But, but you know, a lot of people doubt about it. A lot of other people turn to God and say, God, we trust in you in the midst of all this. Our, our faith is either challenged or strengthened through crises like this. Paul says to you and me, stand firm in the faith. 
Satan's going to throw everything at you. Every doubt that he can conjure up in your life, he's going to throw at you. Don't let that happen. Trust him. Walk with him. Get in his word and pursue him. Because we have a hope in the gospel that is hope not just for this life, but it's a hope for the life to come. A hope with him in glory for all of eternity. Paul says that is important and that is significant for you to understand. Then Paul turns to his own ministry. And in verse 24, he starts talking about his sufferings. He says, listen, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. There's joy in suffering, Paul says. James said that in his epistle. Count it all joy, my brothers, when various trials and tribulations and difficulties come upon you, knowing that God is at work, knowing that God is giving you strength to face those. And Paul says basically the same thing here. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Remember, Paul's writing this from prison. Paul's writing this under arrest for preaching the gospel. That's suffering. And yet he says, there's joy in this suffering because it is for your sake. There are three things about his ministry and his suffering that he says here. The first is that it's for the sake of other people. It's for the sake of other people. For the sake of you and your walk with Christ. I, I, I love what happened to Paul and what Paul saw on the Damascus Road. If you've got your Bible there, turn me back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 is that expression of what happened. I'm going to read the whole thing, but I want you to see a couple of things here. Verse 1 says, Paul was still breathing, Saul rather, was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was threatening them. He was, he was hating them. He wanted to murder disciples of Christ, those who followed Christ. And so it says, he went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is how that early group of band of believers referred to themselves, they are the way. They are the way to show you the way to Jesus Christ, the only way. He wants to search out those who are belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so he went. They gave him the letters. He took off to Damascus looking for believers, looking for Christians. And as he's on his way on the Damascus Road, in, in verse 3, it talks about how he approached a light from heaven shone around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't it amazing? Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting these people? Why are you after those who follow me? Why are you mistreating the church? Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul is about to, Saul is about to learn something as, he's, as he becomes Paul the Apostle, if you will. He's about to learn something that's very significant about persecution and about suffering. But you know the story? He was struck blind, couldn't see. And he went on into, uh, he traveled on his way. And, and there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, here I am, Lord. And he said to him, 
Rise and go to the street called Straight in the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision. He's seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now Ananias knew, Ananias knew about Saul. He, everybody, especially the believers, knew about Saul. And they wanted nothing to do with this man. And, and even Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And, and here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. That authority has even gone before Saul to Damascus, obviously. And then the Lord said to him, listen to this. Go, Ananias, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. To the whole world and even to the authorities. Even as he's there in Rome now in prison speaking to Caesar and Caesar's household. So Ananias got up and he departed and he entered the house and laid hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent, to me, sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He rose and was baptized. He could see. He ate food and he was strengthened. He said he had to show him the things that he would suffer the sake of Christ and the sake of the church. So Paul, from the very beginning of his ministry, from his very beginning of the understanding of the gospel, saw that suffering was going to be a part of it. And suffering would be a part of his ministry and a, and a part of the Christian life, quite frankly. Now, he makes that statement there that many people trip up on. But he says, I'm filling up. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Some have taken that and said, well, Paul is saying here that, that Christ's sufferings were not complete. They were not enough. They, and these are what some of the, the false teachers were saying. You know, you've got you to trust Jesus and you've got to add something else to it. And maybe it's suffering in this case. And Paul says his suffering is filling up for the sake of the body. Paul never for one moment thinks that there is anything lacking in the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ. He knows they are sufficient and they are complete and they are total for the salvation of his people. He never doubts. I mean, look over in, in, in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, if you want to see that for for. A clarity. In chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says, In him also, that is in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Circumcision of the heart. By putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the, power working, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses, alienated, hostile in mind, etc., evil deeds, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. 
by, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. He has set, aside, set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So Paul never believes for a moment that, that suffering is somehow adding to the salvation of others. The salvation is in Christ alone and His work of bringing you forth from the dead and making you alive. Making you alive. In Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying here is that those sufferings are not lost. His sufferings are not lost on the body. He tells the Philippian Christians, because of my imprisonment, more people are preaching the gospel than ever. My suffering is issuing forth the preaching of the gospel. At other places, he says, because of my suffering here in a Roman prison, others are believing. Even, even some in Caesar's household are believing. And they send their greetings back to you. I mean, Paul gives a clear indication that suffering will always be a part of ministry. Some of it great, some of it small, but there will always be, a, always be an element of suffering because Christ is dwelling in us. And Christ is, is feeling our suffering along with Him as we suffer as His body on this earth. It is not to be missed, folks, that when Paul talks about he, we are his body, we are his body, it is, a, it is in a sense Christ working on the earth by his Holy Spirit in his church to manifest the glory of the Father, to manifest the glorious Trinitarian truth of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God planning our salvation, Father planning our salvation, Christ accomplishing our salvation, the Holy Spirit applying our salvation to our hearts and giving us strength to face whatever sufferings may come. But when he talks about filling up what is lacking, he's not talking about anything lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. He makes that clear, abundantly clear, over and over and over. But he's suffering for your sake, that you might see the glories of that sacrifice that has been given through Christ. They're for the sake of other people. They're identified with the afflictions and the sufferings of Christ, and they're his greatest joy. They're his greatest joy. So here's what we have. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, miraculously converted from a hater of the church to a part of the church. The Apostle Paul going and seeing Ananias being prayed for and having his sight come back and then being set apart, baptized as a believer and then set apart as an apostle to the Gentiles but to speak not only to the Gentiles but to kings and authorities and also to the Jewish nation, to the, to the Jewish people. And what Paul has there is a changed life that issued forth in full ministry. Now, you aren't called to be an apostle. I'm not called to be an apostle. You're called to be a message bearer, though. You're called to be one who strives to share this good news. Paul says in verse 28, Him we proclaim. There's the message. We don't talk about, we don't talk about joining a church first and foremost. We don't talk about uh, what you got to give up and what you got to do here and do there. You don't do all that. You talk about here is Christ the Savior, the Lord, the Redeemer, the Reconciler, hanging on a cross, 
in place of us bearing our sins. That's a, we, it's Him we proclaim. It's Christ and Christ alone that we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That is, warning them that there are false teachers out there who want to add something to Christ. But we proclaim Christ and Christ alone. We don't add anything. Teaching everyone with wisdom. James said, if anybody lacks wisdom, ask for it. Ask God for it, and he will give it in abundance. That's what Paul simply says. We want to teach you the truth of the gospel as we proclaim Christ. That we may present everyone mature in Christ. What is your desire as a Christian? To just have heaven when you die? To just to have, be able to have some sense of forgiveness of sin? Or is it to give yourself for the sake of others? To give your life ministering to others? During this time of coronavirus, I've heard of so many examples of people giving of themselves to minister to other people. That is, the, that is what Christ has redeemed you for and given you life for. And it's hard. Ministry can be hard. I'm not talking about ministry from a pulpit or ministry professionally, if we could use that word that I don't like. I'm talking about ministry of the believer. It can be hard. Some people don't want to listen. Some people don't want to have anything to do with it. It's all right. We still are called to minister for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the body. We minister to others. But we have to recognize this. We don't do it in our strength, our own strength. Paul says, I toil, I strive. He used the word there is, is a word of hardness and, and, and passion. And, and man, I am striving for this. But I'm struggling with his energy. It's not my energy. I don't have that kind of energy. I'll fail and fall and give up a million times a day if I'm trying to do it in my own strength. So, so some people say, well, is the Christian life just passive because God's working in us? Paul seems to indicate, no, it's not just passive. It's very active. It's very, stra- it's very straining. It's, very, it, it, it's toiling and struggling. But it's doing it in his energy, in his power, that he powerfully works within me. Again, I'll go back to that verse in Philippians Chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul says that I may know Him, I want to know Christ better, and I want to know the power of His resurrection, which comes from understanding the fellowship of His sufferings, Paul says. Three things, knowing Christ, having His resurrection power in my life, the power Paul's talking about here, His energy powerfully working within me, the resurrection power. in the midst of his sufferings. I may know him in the power of his resurrection and fellowshipping with Christ in his sufferings. And that's what Paul is saying here. I'm in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And it's a joy to even suffer for the sake of God's people. Folks, God has called us God has called us out of the world into his kingdom for purpose. And that purpose is ministry. That purpose is sharing and proclaiming him 
in the midst of doing not evil deeds, but good deeds. Our, our purpose is to, to see somebody with a need and share that need and tell them, you're not doing that because you're a good person. You're, you're doing that because you're a changed person. And Christ is the source of your change and can be for them also. You proclaim Him. You present Him. Share the gospel of Christ. There is power in the cross, and there's power in suffering. And there's joy in the cross, and there's joy in suffering. Do you know Him? Have you trusted Him? Not saying, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to do these other things so God will love me more. That doesn't work. That doesn't happen that way. He's the all-sufficient Savior. He's the all-sufficient Lord. Are you trusting in Him alone this morning? Pray with me, would you?